Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello and welcome to Brexit Unspun. This is where we debunk the political spin around Brexit. I'm Shona Jenkins. The negotiations to pave the way for Britain leaving the European Union are already full of animosity and look to be extremely difficult, with the added pressure of the clock ticking before the deadline of March 2019. What impact will all this have on Britain's standing in the world and on its future relations with the bloc? Here with me to discuss this is our Brussels bureau chief, Alex Barker, and Philip Stevens, our chief political commentator. First, Alex, as a former European diplomatic editor, you followed many multilateral negotiations in the past. How does the tone of these initial Brexit talks compare? Well, I've been in Brussels a while, and here you usually have negotiations which the temperature rises, there's lots of noise, clashes, people say, oh, disaster may happen. And in the end, there's a kind of honourable fudge that emerges. And it's really seen as a kind of debate within the family. And Britain's approach to Brexit in some ways has been a continuation of that. You still hear language in the UK in terms of how they're talking about Europe. It's the kind of criticism that you'd only level to your own family in some ways, and it's not the way that Britain talks about other parts of the world. On the Brussels side, the psychology has changed a bit. A lot of the people around that EU table almost imagine Brexit as having happened, that this is the transition already in play. And the question is whether, when we come down to this negotiation, Britain will be seen as a kind of other and the hardness of the EU will prevail. Do you think the tone is going to get more conciliatory this time, as you said it usually does, or do you think it's actually going to be the opposite? I'm sure it will get worse before it gets better, especially as we get to the more difficult parts of the negotiation around money in the coming months. We'll see a lot of the issues and decisions kind of compressed in the winter and early spring, and the tone of this could easily turn bad. But I think there are people on both sides who want to try to keep this as level-headed as possible to ensure it doesn't veer off course by uh, accident. Do you think Britain's standing amongst its European neighbours is being affected by the tone in the UK at the moment? And will it have any lasting impact? There's absolutely no doubt that Britain's standing here has been affected. I mean, in terms of soft power, Boris Johnson is foreign secretary. He was a very prominent Brexiter. And there was a time when the German foreign minister was so appalled by how he conducted that Brexit campaign that he would barely want to be in a room with him. And so that has an effect. When Boris Johnson is talking about something like Turkey's membership bid for the EU and encouraging that, it clearly raises some eyebrows among others in the room who say, didn't you campaign in the UK for Brexit on the basis that Turkey's membership would bring more migrants to Britain? It has effects and is being felt around the table. And the question will be whether the kind of underlying interests on both sides will prevail over time and whether the political fallout from the Brexit 
wake up will dissipate. Philip, what about the perceptions of Britain globally? What are its perceived strengths and do you think these will be enhanced or undermined by Brexit? I think they will be undermined. I think the easiest way of looking at this is to say that Britain has sort of kicked away or is kicking away one of the twin pillars of its foreign policy for the last half a century. That policy has been based on a very strong security relationship with the United States, but a very strong political and economic relationship within the EU with the rest of Europe. Now, by leaving the EU, we kick that pillar away. We won't be there when the French and the Germans and the Italians talk about Russia, talk about the migration crisis, talk about the problems of terrorism. We won't be in the room. So we've lost one half of our foreign policy at a time when Donald Trump, the US president, is putting a big question mark over the transatlantic relationship. So I think we're in some trouble for a while. Which are the main countries or regions that Britain is hoping to build closer ties with after Brexit, I guess, as a replacement in a way? And is their desire for closer ties reciprocated? Well, I think the government's made it clear that it wants to build stronger trade ties with the big emerging economies, whether that's China or India or Brazil. But they're not foreign policy ties in a sense. Our value system and our interests are much, much more closely aligned with the rest of Europe or with the United States than perhaps with China or some other of these countries. So while Britain wants to build these trading relationships, it's hard to see, if you like, in the sort of geostrategic sphere where we sit outside the EU. And I fear that will be alone. Now, some Brexiteers have suggested that Britain can reverse its long post-imperialist decline by going its own way or being alone and reverting to its traditional strengths. And others see more of a parallel with 17th century Venice, which declined as a powerful trading hub because it failed to adapt. What do you think about this? I'll start with you, Alex. Well, I think Philip's point about the trade relationships we're trying to rebuild around the world is an important one because before we can become that kind of global hub, Britain will have to work extremely hard just to replace what is lost in terms of the fabric of its commercial relations around the world. And that's going to be hugely time-consuming exercise for Whitehall. It will absorb the government for a very long time in its outlook on the world, and it will start playing into how we deal with different parts of the world when we are at the same time seeking to re-establish trade relationships with them that we lost after leaving the EU. So it's quite hard to see through that to the kind of medium long-term status we'll have and how good that would be. I mean, I should add what response we're seeing from the EU side is very interesting and you have seen an energy in the discussion about further European defence cooperation that's been missing for quite a long time and great ambition being voiced by actors on the European level. Now, obviously, one caveat to that is that they're losing their biggest military spender within the EU, but there is much more openness to 
close cooperation between member states, big industrial projects potentially. France and Germany are talking about a joint fighter project quite soon. And for the UK, which has seen itself as having a kind of security surplus that it can leverage in the Brexit negotiations, the concern will be that EU defence becomes a bit more exclusive in the way it approaches issues. And that's probably not so much on the operational side as on the industrial side. If there is a European fighter jet, is that something that Britain can just buy if it wants, or could it actually partake in the making of weapon systems like that? And that's quite an important consideration for the years ahead as well. Philip? Um, I think, you know, we live in a world now where alliances and groups of countries are almost ubiquitous. And for a time, at least, it will seem that Britain is the only significantly sized country out there on its own. The problem the government has is that Europe has, for the last 40 odd years, amplified our voice in the world. If you talk to American politicians, they've said that one of the reasons that Britain is a valuable ally is because we have a voice in the rest of Europe and we can help shape decisions taken on the continent. Back in 1960, when we were just about to make our first application to join the EU, the American statesman Dean Acheson said that Britain had lost an empire and failed as yet to find a role. And once we got into the EU 10 or so years later, it seemed that we'd answered that question because our role was to be a strong ally to the US, but a big player in Europe. It now looks like, once we come out of the EU, we'll have to start asking Dean Acheson's question once again. Thanks to Alex and Philip, and thanks for listening. We'll be back next week for another unvarnished look at what Brexit will mean for Britain's trade, economy, public institutions and private sector. We hope you'll join us then, and we'd be delighted in the meantime if you wanted to review or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you download. You can also email us at brexitunspun, that's all one word, at ft.com if you have a question or would like to suggest a topic for future episodes. 